Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We're thrilled to share our conversation with our guest on today's episode, Kimberly Wilson. She is a highly respected psychologist, author, and expert in the field of mental health and nutrition. And in this episode, she shares her insights on how to navigate the ever-evolving landscape of social media and how to stay away from false information related to nutrition and mental health. Kimberly has a master's degree in nutrition and has authored two books, How to Build a Healthy Brain, published in 2020, and Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Crisis, published this year. She has a private practice in central London and has had extensive experience leading therapy services at one of the largest women's prisons in Europe. Kimberly believes the way we think about mental health as separate from physical health is flawed. Her philosophy of whole body mental health is a comprehensive approach to mental health care, integrating evidence-based nutrition and lifestyle factors with psychological therapy with an emphasis on nutrition and the brain. She's passionate about psychology and is committed to demystifying the theories and putting the information into the hands of the people who need it through social media, podcasts, television appearances, live events, and regular appearances on expert panels. It was a great pleasure to speak with her, and we hope this is the first of many conversations in the future. We're here with Kimberly Wilson. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. I know that our conversation started way before I pressed the record button (laughs) because there's so much to say and there's I feel that there's uh, a lot of uh, overlap between your message and our message. And like I was telling you earlier, the thing that stands out for us um, uh, on your on your page and on your, um, you know, information source is the fact that you are, first of all, evidence based. And second, you really give a lot of time to explain the relevance of uh, context when it comes to mental health and brain health. And you're not afraid of nuance, of complexity, and absolutely love the message that you share with everyone. And we're so happy to have you here with us on our podcast. Thank you. No, it's a real honor to be invited. So thank you very, very much for having me. We have written amazing books. Your book, Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Process, is incredible. And in it, obviously, you give a lot of information about the connection between food and mental health and the relevance of what we do every single day to take care of our brain health. Um, what inspired you to delve into this topic? I think really the, the, the clearest moment in my mind is uh, when I was working in prisons. And um, so I was running a therapy service at what was at the time the largest women's prison in Europe. And some of the idiosyncrasies of working with female offenders is that even though they only made up at the time about 6% of the overall prison population in the UK, they accounted for an overwhelming amount of the self-harm. Somewhere close to 50% of the incidents of self-harm were from the female estate. Um, And so part of my role was to sit in the safety and security meetings on a weekly basis and with the other members of the, the prison staff work out who was at risk? Was there a risky time coming up? Were there court cases coming up? Were there um, anniversaries, Mother's Day, Christmas? All of these are kind of risky times in terms of of self-harm or violence or just agitation and um, a mental health decline. 
And so always uh, risk and safety were on my mind as well as thinking about what's happening with my caseload and, and, and my team. And it was around that time, around 2010, that a replication came out of a study that had first been done in 2002 in the UK. And then it was replicated in the Ministry of Justice uh, in the Netherlands. And it was a double-blind RCT on the use of nutritional supplementation in aggressive male offenders. And they found what was really interesting about both of these studies was they found a, a very similar magnitude of effect um, and that they were looking at objective incidents of violence. So it wasn't just subjective. Do you feel violent today? Do you feel like punching John in the face? It was really actually going to the logbook at the end of the wing, counting how many infractions there had been and then comparing that with the placebo wing of the prison. And they found an average of about 30% reduction in violent incidents in the supplemented groups. And so that had been, so that was the 2002 UK study, one in uh, the Netherlands had been an older US study done on um, young offenders. And there was a similar study done in Singapore more recently in the early 2020s. I think there's another one underway in Australia, but you know, a series of RCTs showing that this, the potential for a simple, very cheap, low risk intervention to have some impact on a huge problem of prisons, one that causes staff sickness, uh, more risky behavior, extended sentences, all of this sort of stuff. The idea that something as simple as improved nutrition could, could potentially play a role, I thought was incredible and it was really relevant to my work. Um, and so that's when I really kind of got started thinking about this, this area of research and this kind of evidence base. Fantastic. And, and then what was the nutritional intervention in each of these um, studies? So it was, um, they were nutritional supplementation, so vitamins and minerals, so broad spectrum micronutrients. Um, I think one study used um, omega-3s and vitamin D as well, but mostly vitamins and minerals. Um, and it, against placebo, for a minimum of two weeks, average about 12 weeks, and they get this kind of very similar uh, magnitude effect. Well, That's amazing. Okay. Um, sorry, being a scientist, uh, immediately uh, uh, in my head, things pop up as confounders. There's a, a tremendous number of conf potential confounders in a study like that because, you know, uh, the observation bias that uh, when you're in a study, you're being observed, um, even though that's a blind uh, RCT, as, as you would expect. There's been um, um, evidence of seepage and, and leakage um, uh, of, uh, of bias. Um, uh, 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 do you think that they've con controlled for all those factors? I think they've done a pretty good job. So they, the, all of the studies were at least double blind. One was triple blind, um, against oh. placebo. Yeah. Um, so, and, um, the placebos were very, you know, they very well matched in, in terms of kind of the appearance and, and all of that stuff. And I think, um, the, in the analysis of, the whether they knew whether they were on the placebo or not, there was no significant difference between those two. So, you know, within the constraints and the confines of this kind of environment, I think they've done a pretty good job. Of course, yeah. you know, we need more. But what's really interesting about um, this group of studies and the environment is how little interest there has been in replication, actually. You would think with a magnitude of effect like that, even the fact that it is extraordinary would lead other people to say, listen, 
let's let's have another look at this. Let's yeah. just dig into this and see what's happening. If we can replicate it and if we can't, because that would be really important. But what's really interesting, and I think it's to do with the population, um, is how little noise this kind of uh, research, this kind of outcome has made. I think if we were talking about a general population, so if we were talking about, um, I don't know, at-risk teens or people on anger management courses in the general population, we said, listen, there's a there's a pill that you can take that will potentially reduce your outbursts and improve your impulse control. I think there'd be a lot more noise made about it, but I think there's a real reticence um, and a, an actual active disinterest in a prison population. And so, yes, I, I, I absolutely take your point. And it'd be lovely to have more more applications of this work. And it's very interesting that there haven't been. I mean, just the nature of science, <clears throat> uh, you know, you uh, on, on social media and in the media in general, anecdotes take over space. And anecdotes are the lowest level of, I mean, they're science, they're, they're useful, but they're useful as far as just instigating the next step. You don't make conclusion. But in social media, one anecdote and everybody's jumping on, it's like, oh yeah, there, coconut oil. There it is. It's going to cure everything. One case, one case. <laughs> but it, it is valuable. But when you have RCTs, that even if you are incredulous about its uh, its uh, power, let's say, although yeah. the, although statistics would take care of it, you would that should have definitely prompted further follow up. Absolutely. The Absolutely. fact that there's so little follow up tells you not so much about the study, but about the the biases of the funding agencies. Mm. The a priori biases of funding. We did a study. We were one of the PIs in Arizona where they looked at uh, nutrition um, um, for um, uh, addiction. Uh, those people who come to a facility, in-house facility for addiction, um, uh, uh, whole food plant-based versus um, uh, regular food. And, and we saw a signal and, and we saw we wrote it up and, and it was written up and uh, the, the first author wrote it up and all that. And, and even there, we said, it's, it's just another signal. It should be mm -hmm. further worked up and all of that. But if it's not followed back, it says something to the fact that it's not that people don't have interest. They're active, they actively don't have interest. That means that they yeah. have preconceived notions that they, wanna, they don't want to explore. And it's such an easy thing to both do study in and also if it works, such an easy way to such an curb easy behavior. Win. Yeah, it's, it's a win-win. And... I mean, off, off the record, but on the record, um, I, I have spoken to journalists who have tried to follow up these studies, you know, either talking to the Home Office, talking to people who were there at the time, and they have got the message very explicitly that there's just, we're just not interested in this kind of thing. Yeah. And that's, uh, for several reasons, that's really frustrating. First of all, it's just a kind of dismissal of an entire population of people. Um, it's a dismissal of what could be really relevant science, not just for this population, but for people more broadly, it's not just yeah. prisoners who are nutritionally deficient. Actually, we have a lot of people on the outside who might be benefiting um, from these sorts of investigations or from the outcomes of the research that comes from the follow-ups. So it's, it just feels like an abandonment of a responsibility to just not do anything with it. The first, the UK study was done in 2002. So we are 20, more than 20 years on. Oh and nothing has been done. Yeah, we did a study, a, a comprehensive review on omega-3 and the developing brain and another comprehensive review of omega-3 and the aging brain. And it was... It supplementation. Was, yeah, it was supplementation. And it was comprehensive, you know, the, the, the methodology of two reviewers, you know, all of that. So it was pretty extensive. 
<clears throat> it was published and and we were very circumspect about the results the results uh were um uh showed trends and and we said that it showed trends that, uh, and that we're okay as science we're okay we don't have to be binary yes or no work or no work the trends matter and and uh, the effect on omega-3 and the children was actually that was more powerful than on the aging side um and yet there hasn't been as much work on if, if not omega-3 as pills awareness and cognizance of omega-3 content foods we're plant-based we're all food plant-based even especially amongst uh, the population are whole food plant-based you have to be extra aware this is not a weakness of the diet it's awareness of all of humanity that all of us have deficits so that what a wonderful work you're doing i don't know where to start with the the preconception early life nutrition the the huge gap between the research outcomes and recommendations and actually what's happening in the world is terrifying it is it's what i was reading today it's a Less than 30% of UK women are taking their folic acid. Mm. I mean, it's so worrying. And, and that's, you know, one of the nutrients that everybody knows about, we're well aware, even people who aren't even thinking about becoming pregnant know about something about folic acid. But then there are all those, the other nutrients, like making sure you're getting, omega-3s aren't even really recommended in terms of ensuring you've got adequate supplementation during preconception and pregnancy. In fact, we don't even talk about preconception. Um, but iodine, choline, like all of these key brain building nutrients are either missing from the preconception supplements altogether in the case of choline, or just not likely to be recommended by your healthcare professional. And the evidence is there. We know these associations there, particularly for the you know early parts of gestation. It just beggars belief. You know, we're we're letting people down. Yeah. by not giving them this information. And and then the children end up paying for it. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point. Um, you were talking about iodine. And, you know, Dean and I have actually worked outside of the United States in multiple different, you know, uh, countries like Afghanistan and in several countries in the continent of Africa. And iodine deficiency in goiter seems to be the number one reason for an element affecting cognition in children and in adults. And yes, in the Western world, we never think about it because our foods are fortified and you know the quality of food and life is higher than what it is in, say, for example, in a country like Afghanistan. But iodine, just a supplementation of iodine can affect IQ. People actually can have lower IQ levels and significant mental decline because of deficiency of a food that is easily replaceable. So I agree. I mean, I think the messaging has to be out there and there has to be better way of informing people to take care of themselves. And I don't I also feel that it's we shouldn't put the onus and the responsibility on individuals alone, but there have to be a systematic way of us sharing this information in a public health announcement kind of way so that they're more aware. And I don't see that happening quite often. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's not incentivized? There's not a lot of financial reward into it? What may be the reason for it? Um, I think, I think there are a few things. I think there's a way in which, and I suppose there's a balance that needs to be struck between over-medicalizing yeah. pregnancy and early life, um, but also the 
thing at the other end where there's this kind of assumption that it's just, it's all natural and, and the body will take care of itself and don't worry. And, and actually, <laughs> actually it's a bit more compl complicated than that. Um, and, and, and I think perhaps we, we, the, the, I think really the, the government isn't really making that link between population nutrition and mental health. There's a real gulf around the relationship between nutrition. When we think about nutrition, we're generally thinking about aesthetics. People are thinking, will this make me fatter or will it make me thinner? Is the first question. And then you've got the kind of longevity crew who are thinking about trying to live to 120. But people are very rarely thinking, is this thing that I'm eating or is my overall diet contributing to me staying sharp in my 70s, me being able to continue all of those activities of daily living and taking care of myself. And so we don't do that in the general population. We absolutely don't do that at government level. There is that, there is not that connection. Um, last year, our out, we had very, lots of changes in our politics last year. So, <laughs> but one of our outgoing um, health secretaries um, before he left, said, we're gonna, I'm gonna have a very ambitious plan for dementia. You know, this is our ambitious 10-year plan for dementia, dementia care, dementia prevention. Nowhere was nutrition mentioned. Even when we had these very clear associations about diet quality and, and, and risk, this thinking isn't happening at the levels of policy. And so I think when we take that back all the way to pregnancy, people aren't thinking, actually, but the government isn't thinking what people are eating now is going to affect, you know, the IQ scores of our of the children in 10, 15 years' time, which will affect GDP because we know that IQ tracks with GDP with, with lifetime earnings. And so we're just missing the the connections between what's known and what's professed, I think. Right, what's right. It's, it's so funny you say that. I mean, like I said, uh, Aisha said, we were creating the healthcare system for Afghanistan and, and several countries. And the first thing you jump to is nutrition and fortification. Yeah. <clears throat> and in and, and, and the West, there's the two sides of things. One is the naturalistic bias, right? Oh, if it's not natural. Nope, evolution didn't care about you living past 30. Realize that. <laughs> it didn't even care about you. It didn't even care about you thriving. You know, cognitively, uh, if 15% of your population was hypothyroid and had a cognitive deficit, it could still reproduce. That's true. And, and still could, you know, uh, hunt and, and forage or whatever. Uh, so we are cheating the system. That's okay. The other extreme is when people jump into uh, exaggerated um, um, manipulations, and we see the other side as well, extreme. Data-driven evidence shows that, yes, we have to folate, we have to be aware of our iron. We have to be aware of iodine. We have to be aware of B12. These kind of things and, and, and vitamin D and on and on. And we have to just be aware. It doesn't mean that you have to jump on the bandwagon of polypharmacy, but we have to be definitely aware. And, and the lack of motivation from the government side is, I agree with you, there are multiple, multiple reasons for it. In fact, in the United States, there seems to be counter interests mm -hmm. that, that, that resist change as well as far as food is concerned and things of that nature so it's a complicated situation you know we had a conference conference last week for aapa american academy of physicians assistants there were like five thousand people in the audience and, and on and 
and they thought we we're going to talk about dementia at the end. They said, what is one thing you would focus on as far as public health that would have the greatest impact? And they thought I was going to talk about dementia. I said the first five years of life. Yes. Yeah. Those determine so finance, that determines success, that determines happiness, that determines longevity, that, term, that determines dementia risk. Everything is those five, first five years. It's so beautiful you said that. Um, uh, but yet we don't. We don't focus at all. There seems to be... And I, I, I think used to have a, a supervisor who would say she would talk about what she perceived to be a kind of contempt for childhood. This is and a, a kind of um, almost a hangover in the UK of a kind of Victorian children should be seen and not heard, and that's shifting now. But a way in which you know we we, we don't really think about childhood. Childhood is just a, a kind of inconvenient step before you become a reductive money-making adult <laughs> yes. and you just need to be kind of clean and organized until you get to that point yeah. um and you know we were seeing the pointy end of a lot of, of childhood experiences but there seems there doesn't seem to be that kind of reverence or or valuing of um of early life, of pregnancy, you know, I, I guess, I mean, you guys have even worse maternity leave than than we do over here. So oh, there's yeah. this kind of way which, you know, you're expected to just off <laughs> get it out and then pop back to work. And we're not really interested in actually how important this time is, not just in terms of the nutrition, but certainly from a psychological point of view, that the early formation of the bond and being thought about and held in mind and developing of the relationship and learning to think about oneself. All of that happens in the context of a loving relationship where parents have time to spend with their children. And I think our, our economics and our political system is so focused on the productivity of you know the individual that it kind of misses the family. And I think a balance needs to be struck between those demands. But it is productivity though, but it's short term. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, as far as productivity, nothing actually increases productivity more than investment in those first five years. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, but, uh, we, we talk about leadership, leadership. I did a PhD in leadership. I, your leadership is learned in home the first five years. We, are, we, are, we have to take classes and classes for driving, but nobody, you know, th there, there's no investment in teaching parents how to interact, how to converse, how to reward, how to empower, how to give tools, how to uh, how to put one step right in front where it doesn't feel overwhelming. Yeah, how to create courage, how to create fearlessness, how to create you know all those things are incredibly important, even from a very capitalistic perspective. There's nothing more productive toward that capital, later capital, than those first five to five years of knowledge in the household, knowledge in the community. We don't do mm -hmm. anything in investing time, giving the mother's time to build those relationships. I, I agree with you. I mean, this conversation was somewhere else, but it, that appears, well, you're getting married soon. <laughs> and we just had our 19th anniversary and our teenagers are on their way uh, out. So it, it is, it's critically important. I agree with you, especially nutrition. And talk about an easy input. Wow. An easy, ubiquitous input. Absolutely, because I mean, I don't, I never want to give the impression that I think nutrition is a panacea. Like, oh, what, you know, you're terribly depressed, or or you're on the verge of, uh, of of a panic attack. Just have a carrot. Like, I never want to give people that impression. Um, but what is important about 
the influence of nutrition on brain health is that of all the things that we know that contribute to things like depression and dementia, so our leading causes of, of disease and, and death in the UK are you know, disorders of the mind, uh, depression and dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we know that these are multifactorial conditions, you know, that it's about early life, it's about genetics, it's about poverty, it's about ethnicity and the way the world responds to you and treats you. It's about, you know, your access to green space and to healthcare. Yeah. Thing is, I, or, you know, I cannot create new social housing overnight. We cannot shift our economic system overnight. But actually something that can, when there is sufficient will, be shifted very quickly is nutrition. You know, we can, whether that's through supplementation or whether that's through subsidies, we can shift nutrition very, very quickly. And, you know, the, there was often the excuse beforehand, you know, process policy takes time, implementation takes time. What COVID showed us is that actually we can implement things very, very quickly when we have a sense of urgency about them. Yeah. We had policies that were written overnight. The ink wasn't dry and people were <laughs> having to shift the way that they were working or living. And so we know that we can work with alacrity when there's enough will. And it's, the, it's that will part that is, is missing. Absolutely. And I think the will part comes from enough evidence showing the impact of an action on an outcome. And um, I, I so appreciate what you just said right now about mental health and the relationship between food and where we are right now. Um, as you're aware, Kimberly, you're on social media and uh, we are as well. I mean, it's so sad to see, you know, talking heads simplifying the impact of uh, nutrition on brain health or not looking at the bigger picture of all the other factors that come into play as well, like you said, culture, um, age, uh, gender, um, societal influences. Um, we always resort to simplific sim simplistic statements like, oh, if you eat turmeric, your depression is going to go away. Or for example, soy can cause depression in men and feminization in men and things of that nature. So it, you know, we, we live in a world where sound bites, sound bites work and everybody base their lives, their, their decisions of how to live a life based on these sound bites. And um, in a world where there's not enough time to sit down and look at a complex picture or listen to a complex conversation and see where you are in that complexity and then making a decision. How Absolutely. do you, how do you, um, I, I, I guess this is not a fair question because it's a very, very big question, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure you would agree that there is a big problem, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so worrisome to see people simplifying such a complex message and then pe expecting people to understand it, isn't it? It's bewildering and it's terrifying. And it's, I have, I, I talk about, I start a lot of my videos by saying, as you've heard me say before, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> because I have what I think of as, as a campaign for complexity that we need, we need to understand that nothing, particularly nothing in terms of mental health, is straightforward. There is nothing about biology to start with that is, as you say, binary. It's never 
if then it's always a spectrum there's always overlap and merging and interactions that we haven't even calculated um in order to be able to account for um i i think about a lot of our our media and the the information that we consume now is ultra processed everything is already pre-digested for you we have apps that you know you don't have to read a whole book why would you bother reading an entire book somebody else has already read it for you or there's an ai that's done it for you and here's the bits that other people found interesting so we've just given it to you pre-digested and you just you know kind of slurp it down but it absolutely it it deprives everything of meaning and and i have a an online book club that i call thinking space for that reason like let's read a book and then let's think about it let's just we don't want to come to any conclusions we don't even need to say whether we like it or not it's not even about that let's have a space where we can we can just think about ideas and i think we've really really lost that we've lost the opportunity for what i call like thinking in public i maybe that's not my phrase but i quite like it that kind of and that, which is different from debate. It's different from, and actually most of our debates aren't even really debates anymore. If you watch a TV or news debate, actually they find someone on one extreme end of the spectrum and then we find another zealot from the other end of the spectrum and we sit them down in front of each other and make them kind of throw rocks at each other from across the coffee table. Um, that's not helping anybody. You know, no one is learning from that experience. We're not learning to listen. We're not learning to argue. We're not learning how to form a, a thoughtful conversation. We're not learning to kind of uh, respond to this, the central argument. We're not doing any of that. And I think in a lot of the way that we approach debate and conversation now, it's really about just trying to convince your base, you know, to kind of reinforce something that you already know. But also, it's it's almost like you're, you're trying to diminish the other person. You're waiting for that opportunity to get that zinger in, which means it's never in good faith. And so someone can't come with vulnerability or um, they, can't, they can't show that they're unsure, you know. And actually... All of good conversation and learning is about being unsure and working something through and, you know, let me check this. Do, am I understanding you right? Let me just double check that. And, and if, we, if we don't have that as a model, if I can't turn on my television and, and see that happening, and if we don't have that in our schools, then I don't know what happens. I, yeah, you know, yeah. It's the battle between, I say the battle of humanity is two inches apart between the limbic system and the frontal lobe. It's the emotional <laughs> certainty-seeking brain and, uh, and the complex complexity-seeking brain of frontal lobe. The, I, ironically, this, uh, the, the safety-seeking brain is more powerful, the emotional brain. That's why, in fact, many of the talking heads on social media, if you see the one that go really high up really rapidly, are the males that are very certain about what they're saying. And they say it in a certain way, in a calm, collect, a very very certain way and nobody yes. checks their data sometimes without a shirt yeah. that well, actually drives a message very quickly apparently if you don't have a shirt on and if you're really really confident about your statement it sticks yeah yeah uh, it, it's what? like why are we not more critical of the idea that someone is walking through a supermarket aisle with their shirt off shouting at vegetables like i don't understand why it, it's crazy <laughs> and, and i'll tell you on the other side we're plant-based and we've been invited, and we're getting invited less and less 
like we we say we're plant-based because of this reason this reason but here's where we're wrong and here's where we change it and even where we have changed our ideas yeah and and that level of complexity makes people uncomfortable oh maybe we shouldn't invite them where i say you know your invitation is not as important as the facts um for example with the idea of of fish we say we don't eat fish because of the oceans we're you know all this thing about what we're doing to the ocean. but the data shows fish is good for your brain yeah the data is there. Yeah, it might be polluted. <laughs> there might not be no clean fish and all of that stuff. But but with the data, the data so far shows this. Um, and 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 the omega three part, you can supplement. You can get these other foods. So we bring complexity, and that makes people so uncomfortable. In the world that we live in, there are battles around. If there's olive oil introduced and a drop of food, you're kicked out of the whole forum. Right. Yeah, it's, it's that level of simplification of conversation, which is bewildered. There was a, one of the big, 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 big um, uh, thought leaders in the community that said who endorsed our first book, but didn't endorse our second book because Aisha used spray olive oil on the foods. Yeah, yeah, but but that's <laughs> reflective everywhere. It's reflective of people wanting to be part of a well-defined, unchanging, certain categorization not one that moves with the data. And even the data should be analyzed in a way where the strength of the data is, uh, you know, with Omega-3, we said, there's not perfect data. We looked at all the data and there mm -hmm. seems to be a trend, strong trend. And here's the weakness because the, the studies that were done, they were done in very low doses and the effect seems to be at a higher dose. Like we gave complexity and, and it's frustrating. So your, your voice is refreshing in this environment. A voice of complexity that's that's uh, <laughs> communicated beautifully. Thank you. That's very yeah. very kind. But um, I also um, I'm also very aware that we have audience who are either experiencing mental health issues yes. or have a loved one who's going through it with the ubiquitous nature of mental health in our society. I don't think there's anyone who hasn't been touched by it. Mm. Um, no. And in all of us, especially in the United States, the care that is provided is so dismal that, you know, for example, it takes months for people, for an individual to be able to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist if they have suicidal ideation. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? You either go to an emergency room and wait there for eight, 10 hours to be seen by someone if you're struggling or if it's not quote unquote bad enough, then you'll have to wait for months and months for your insurance to approve for you to sit down with a human being and talk about something that is mm -hmm. tormenting you. It's it's horrifying. Um, it, so there are a lot of individuals who are experiencing mental health issues, who are experiencing even the beginnings of cognitive decline, which by the way, never ever gets detected in a community setting. You either have to have full-blown dementia to be able to be seen and have the conversation, or you, you, you're, you just basically assume that that's a normal way of living. Um, the first thing that we always try to um, share with individuals who may be experiencing some mental health issues is like, Trying to find a quick fix for it is not the right way to do it. It's yeah. always very important for you to make sure that you speak with a healthcare provider to help you assess your situation, find out what's really going on. Nutrition may not be the first answer. You know, you eating a 
quote-unquote clean diet, which is, you know, a word that I'm not very comfortable with, mm-hmm. it is not the way to do it. You need to sit down with someone to find out what is going on, mm-hmm. what are the symptoms that you're experiencing, so that may be a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist or a neurologist or even a primary care physician who can help you understand what's going on because even the diagnosis is critical, isn't it, from your experience? It, ab- it absolutely is, but also... And I've got two thoughts in mind. So one is about the diagnosis and the other is social media. So I'll just part that for the yes. of course. <laughs> um, but, you know, though we, when we think about psychological or psychiatric diagnoses, we have to understand that what we're talking about really are syndromes. They're constellations of symptoms that can present in a similar way, but might not necessarily have the same uh, underlying pathology. So one person's depression is different from another person's depression. One person's depression might be associated with a childhood trauma that they have not been able to process or work through. Another might be the unrelenting stress of having a horrible boss or having to work several jobs to, just to make ends meet. Another might be living in, in terrible housing where they just don't feel safe. And all of these things can affect the underlying stress biology that it, will affect an outcome of depression. So the very first thing that needs to happen is that it's not just good enough to have the label. Actually, I, ideally, and I have to say that obviously this should be happening for everybody, but I know it doesn't. Ideally, you're having an assessment so someone with experience can say, actually, this is, these are your symptoms, you know, low mood or lethargy, tiredness, changes in your weight, Here's what I think is most likely to be driving it for you. These other factors are important as well. This is what I think is most likely to be driving it. And, and, and we can, we can work on this in this way and then see what else we can do to help support your recovery. Um, so we, again, so there's complexity in the diagnosis. Depression doesn't mean anything in, in, in isolation. You need to contextualize it within that person's life and their experience. And this is where it's, hell being a psychologist on social media (laughs) yeah i hear you (laughs) because and and i i i understand and i will assume i will give the benefit of the doubt that most people are coming from a good place and they are well-meaning with the information they are trying to share and that perhaps they had a good experience with this thing um this intervention whatever it was and that they are hoping to help people. I think there are some cynical people out there who, who don't come with good intentions um, or come certainly for more of kind of fiscal intentions. Um, but I will hope that the majority of people are, are trying to be kind and helpful. But the, the problem is, unless you have had extensive training, you don't know what you don't know. And so there's an enormous amount of oversimplification of things like all of those um, posts that say, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I love your expressions. No, they, they, they yeah. speak to my heart. Yeah, we, 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 the reason we laugh is because we feel exactly the same way. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Just constant breaths. Um, you know, five signs you had childhood trauma or seven indications that you are highly functioning this or 15 examples of, of anxiety disorder. And actually what they've done is to gather just... A, kind of sometimes just indications of being alive, you know, like, are you having these basic sensations? And then kind of wrapping them up in a diagnostic label. And it is so unhelpful. It is so, so unhelpful 
Because A, as I say, sometimes sometimes it's just being human. Sometimes you wake up and you you just don't feel good. You, yeah. you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you feel a bit crappy and 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 that's just the human experience. And a lot of the time, a lot of often the work that I'm doing is letting people know or helping people work out how to just tolerate discomfort. I'm not going to take the discomfort away from for you. I can't just do that overnight. Sometimes what it means to be human is just to tolerate the discomfort for the moment and to bear it and get through it. And then we'll carry on. It's not a sign that you're sick. It's not a sign that you're weak. It's not a sign that you're broken. You are a human having a human experience. So it's very, very worrying when you have groups of people kind of putting together what sounds like convincing diagnostic indicators and then telling people that they're sick in a context where there isn't enough psychiatric or psychological support and people can't get in to see their GP and they can't therapist because then what you do is to terrify someone and then leave them unsupported or you offer some inadequate support that isn't going to do the trick so it's 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 a minefield it's a real minefield it's very very worrying landscape thank thank you for shedding light on that i think that's very very important because a lot of individuals are they, they gravitate to towards quick fixes um, because mm-hmm. of the lack of a complexity and a uh, constant source of help and guidance, uh, people turn to quick fixes. And there are some charlatans out there that are making a livelihood out of this. And it's it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous uh, because, like you said, at the end of the day, it's not helpful. And I feel like it actually even makes things worse because if 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 you don't find if you don't find a solution for a problem, it only grows from there. Absolutely. And it makes things worse in, in several ways. So one is that um, when it comes to psychological distress, one part is the distress itself. The other part of the equation is your attitude towards it. So if I feel, I don't, yeah, if I, if I go through um, a bad breakup and I'm left with the feelings associated with that, if I have the attitude that, you know, I'm not the first person in the world that's ever been dumped and other people have gotten through it and I can find resources of how to get through it and I can lean on my friends and family, that's one thing. But if my attitude towards it is there's something wrong with me or I must, you know, I need to fix it, I need to change in some way, that actually compounds my distress. Yeah. So the way that we orient people towards their experiences is really important. And, and I, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people sharing this kind of information aren't really aware of. But the other thing is really the contagion effect, which we really, really need to be mindful of, which is that you can, in some sensitive and vulnerable people, engender symptoms that might not have been there had they not encountered this information. Um, we've seen it most acutely with... Um, uh, Tourette's-like symptoms, um, but I think we see it elsewhere as well. I think when you repeatedly, especially in young people, when you repeatedly encounter information that says, you're sick, you're sick, there's something wrong with you, you're not well, there's something wrong with the way your brain works, actually it increases the likelihood of you experiencing those symptoms, you know, the expectation effect. And we might be actually in some people increasing the likelihood of them becoming unwell or experiencing believing themselves to be unwell. Wow. It, it's, it's great. You brought up the concept of social contagion. And I think in the food indis- food eating disorders world, 
this was very um, poignant and relevant. I think it was South Korea or someplace where there are certain eating disorders that did not even exist, or at least not to the extent that people uh, would, would be able to record it. And then after that concept was introduced from the United States, it became a social contagion among the young, 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 young people, yeah. teenagers. And, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't address it. Of course, 100% we should address it. We should address it uh, scientifically, with data, with under, underlying causes. But we should also understand that certain things should be introduced in a way, they should definitely be introduced, but we should be introduced with a priori knowledge in the community, with, with, with the community being ready to deal with it, not just throw something and say, you're sick if you have the beginnings of these symptoms. One thing that, Kimberly, you said, which is incredibly important, in social media, a lot of times they create disease where there is none and, and a large population. Yeah. You're right. A lot of those symptoms are real human. I mean, Experience. I had never exper experienced depression. I had a shoulder surgery, which knocked me out for months. And I started experiencing this yeah. incredible feelings. And I shared it. And, and just as part of, part of normal you know, experience, I, I got some help and all of that. But, but real the importance is to know that these are real human experiences and you don't have to call everything a disease. Um, and, and that's where you come in, your, your incredible work and hopefully us as well, where we kind of give the appropriate weight of truth. I always say, it's not about truth. Everybody's telling the truth. It's the weight of the truth. If you over-exaggerate the truth, it's a fallacy. If you understate the truth, it's a fallacy. It's the complexity of finding this, this relationship with truth uh, that that's the job of the good scientist, good clinician, good social media, responsible social media person, and you're definitely doing that. Thank you, and no, I appreciate that. No, and Absolutely. you, I, the two of you are a beautiful example of that, and that's why I'm, I'm kind of so excited when you invited me on. It feels a real honor to be here. Thank you. That's very Thank kind you so of much. you. So, uh, given given the state that we are in, where there's massive pseudoscientific conversation going on, uh, oversimplification of very complex concept, and the overwhelming nature of mental health issues in our community. Um, I'm happy that there are individuals like yourself, and there, there are some other fantastic individuals, mental health specialists on social media who are counteracting this, this, this false language and false narrative. Um, that's good. We need more of that. Uh, instead mm -hmm. of shying away from TikTok and Instagram, I think we need to be more available there and break down this 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 uh, this false image uh, of addressing mental health issues are concerned. For the general public, though, Kimberly, when you when you encounter people who are experiencing mental health issues, uh, what would what would your message be for them? You know, they're they're on social media. They're being bombarded with all these messages. What should a normal human being with mental health issues, either for themselves or for their loved one, do in, in this, this complex environment? Where should they get their information from and how should they act? I know the easy answer would be stop and think before you take any action. <laughs> but it, it, sometimes it's hard. What would you tell someone with mental health issues to do? What would be it? If we think, let's say if we, we take the kind of common mental health concerns. I think probably, probably one of the first things I would say is come off social media. Um, really, on, on balance, I would probably say come off social media. Um, 
whether that's because of the quality of the mental health information that's available on there or whether it's simply just a source of stressful information. You know, it's there's a constant barrage of things you should be thinking about, things you should be caring about, things you should be talking about, people you should be following. This is what you should look like. It's just too much. Yeah. It's too much yeah. Yeah. for people when you're feeling well. And it's just a kind of bombardment of information, uh, certainly when you're feeling unwell. So if we're thinking more broadly about how do we reduce the amount of stress the organism is experiencing, then I would say that's a source of stress we can do without. You know, you're, unless your livelihood is on social media, you're not going to lose anything from, from coming off there. Um, then I would say, you know, using that same kind of stress equation as a foundation, because, and the stress equation is, you know, the balance between the stress that's pushing down on you from the top, the, the demands, the pressures, and uh, your denominator is your your coping skills, your opportunity for recovery and rest. So how do we improve those things on the bottom? Um, and so I would do all of, encourage people to do all of that, that self-care stuff. I, I, I often get my patients to do a five-minute walk in the morning. And they will say, what's the point in five minutes? It's not doing anything. And I know, I say, I know. It's just five minutes. What is it going to do? But it's not going to hurt. Um, and lo and behold, they get outside, they move a little. They, there's that kind of inbuilt sense of kind of motivation. There's a sense of achievement. They, you, it's, it's small enough for it to be a habit. You're getting natural light, all of that stuff. Give me five minutes of walk a day. And that's, and I, I will ask for nothing more. Um, we'll focus on your, try to focus on your sleep and let's see if we can just get a few, you know, a few more nutrients in you. And that's just about supporting the physiology, just like, just let's reduce the stress and make sure your, your body is trying to deal with something. Let's try and give it a little bit of support. And of course, absolutely seek out um, qualified support. So, you know, that we're not talking about one thing and one thing only. I really do think about what I call whole body mental health. We cannot, your, your mental health isn't neck up. Your brain is in in your body, your mind is an emergent property of your brain. Your brain is fed by your body and, and it's exposed to everything that's happening in your body. So when we're thinking about your treatment, we should be, you know, just keeping an eye on the body as well. But try to think of these as a kind of supportive, not kind of magic bullet answers, but kind of supportive ways in that are going to support your main treatment. And that should come from someone who is qualified and experienced in supporting you. Beautiful. I love that so Beautiful. much. And by the way, our first advice is uh, five to 10 minutes of walk in the morning for multiple reasons. And, and if you want to do a little more brisk walk, because then that, that gets the blood flowing, all of that stuff. So it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Speaking to the social media thing. Yes, I, think, um, I wanted to come back to that um, too. There was a report um, uh, by CDC, I believe, or um, um, one of the, that uh, actually spoke to the fact that especially for young people, it's an incredibly damaging phenomenon to their mental health. And, and I think that one area that, that, is, um, that we've completely abandoned, and, we, and it's a huge area, is, and, and I don't know if it can even be controlled, is mental health, psychological health, sexual health, in the context of a ubiquitously present, ubiquitously available um, uh, social media and internet environment for teenagers and young people. I mean, they're exposed to um, self-worth issues on a constant mm -hmm. basis. They're exposed to false information and drugs and everything else. Um, sexuality and, and we, you know, sexuality is fantastic. It should be more available, more information, but in a proper way 
that that is digestible for the for the pop, uh, given age. Whereas now pornography is ubiquitous in like twelve year old young men. Are you kidding? I mean, uh, so so I think all of this was completely abandoned because we didn't know what to do with it. No. Uh, the same way that ethics is ethics is being. We just did two podcasts on uh, on AI and ethics and AI. Like my goodness, we have mm. we're completely abandoning the most important thing that should be the front uh, force in front of it. So internet and social media and and teenage mind i would love to explore that with you a little bit because i think that's that's a field that we have we have really abandoned yeah and i think there are i mean there is a growing consensus and i know um jonathan Haidt is kind of one of the kind of lead speakers and thinkers on on this association uh, and there seems to be a growing consensus in the research literature that actually something about social media that's just not good for developing minds. One of the things I had spoken about before, so I did a series a couple of years ago for Mental Health Awareness Week, is around the impact of social comparison, social comparison theory. So we know that we know that humans, we 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 like to know where we sit in the social hierarchy, you know, and we like to know who's taller, who's shorter, who's smarter, you know, all of that. And that starts in the family. Often the family will say, you're the smart one and you're the quiet one and you're the, none of that is particularly helpful, but it happens. Um, and, and so it's, it's thought to be an innate, uh, kind of tendency. And that used to be fine because, because we were often just comparing ourselves to people who were either in our families or in our kind of geographic location. We might have been, you know, in, in the past, generally probably related to them in some way, we were going to be broadly more similar to them than, than different. Um, and social comparison breaks down into your upward comparisons and your downward comparisons. So your upwards comparisons tend to be either looking up at someone who you think is better than you. And two things can happen from that. One is that you can either find it motivating, like, oh, I can be that and they stand out as a model for you. Or it can be demoralizing. If it feels too far away, I'll never be that. There's no point in me trying. I'll, I'll never live up to that standard. And then there's a downward comp comparison, which is often used as a very kind of flimsy bolster to your self-esteem where you look down on someone else. You find someone who looks worse or is on some quality worse off than you and, and look down on them. So as I say, that, that used to be fine when we were broadly comparing ourselves to people on the same socioeconomics level or, uh, you know, someone who had a similar house to us. But now with social media, the, the notion for our brains of what a peer is, is completely destroyed. I might be sitting in my house in, you know, quiet suburb and comparing myself to a nine-year-old millionaire and wondering why I've gone, what I've done wrong, why I failed in life because I'm not one of the 40 under 40 or, or whatever it is. When you see a stream of information that is partly your friends, partly billionaires, partly models, partly manipulated images, it really distorts your sense of what normal is, what normal might be for you. And I think that when you're thinking about a developing mind is really, really, really unhelpful. And I think you it's very difficult when you're faced with that kind of information to think, actually, where I am is fine. And actually, I'm, I'm average. And, and I think we've diminished the notion of average or normal. Nobody wants to be normal anymore. We all need to be extraordinary. Unfortunately, 
most of us are normal. I have a post that says you're not special. And I say that as a, as a kindness. <laughs> I think like it's, you know, we're all just humans trundling along, doing our very best. We're still struggling with the same things we were struggling with 2000 years ago. That's why I like to read some of the old Stoics. Seneca was talking about the same things that we're struggling with today. Oh, you know, yes. like so much of human nature doesn't change, but we are fed this story and this message of constant striving and bettering, um, which I think is exhausting and unattainable. But if you're not, if, if you haven't developed either enough life experience or the kind of critical thinking skills to know that, then you just spend all of your time, hours and hours all, all day on social media, feeling inadequate. And that is, is terrible for, for self-esteem and, and mental health. Absolutely. Uh, that is probably one of my favorite posts ever. And I think the first line was get over yourself. Yeah. Get over yourself. Get over yourself. Yeah. 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 So I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's completely understood. Oh, no, yeah. It, and it's so valuable. It's right. uh, normal is good. Normal is fine. And yeah. pe people don't realize that when you're striving for, uh, for something that is out of reach or that attempt to be extraordinary um it, it it can't be maintained right especially if um if it's essentially in a way where you're essentially trying to meet a goal or comparing yourself to someone else that that can't be that can be maintained and uh, over a long period of time it's not only a failed attempt but it's quite destructive for who you are and for for the society and the community at large as well yeah, and, and also that something's got to give. You know, like, if if I want to be the top, whatever I am in my industry, if I want to do that, I need to dedicate a lot of time and a lot of energy to that. And what that means is I won't have those kind of limited resources, those kind of resources that I cannot replace time and energy um, in, in the immediacy. I don't have that to give to my friends or to my family or to my hobbies, my other pursuits. I have to understand that there is a cost. I have to, I have to decide that I'm going to be rubbish at some other stuff if I'm going to excel at this stuff over here. And I think, I think that part of the message is never really given across. You know, we're, we're told you can have it all. And then when we start failing at having it all, we feel as if we're not working hard enough. I have so many people come to me and just say, I should just work harder. I should just work harder. I should be able to do this. I should be able to afford this. I should, I should, I'm just like, there is, there is literally not enough time in the world and there aren't enough of you to be able to do all of these things. And you have to decide what you're either going to be rubbish at or what you're not going to be able to get around to at all. And then we're going to have to bear the loss of that thing. You know, you, you might never do, you might never climb Everest. I'm really sorry. You might never do it. And so you don't think you I can be a great pian uh, guitarist. <laughs> I, oh my goodness. Okay. I have to give up that hope. He's devastated I'm right devastated. now, Kimberly. <laughs> and, I might and, need you as again, my psychologist. Absolutely fine. Um, but it, it's again, it's kind of bearing that sadness, bearing that loss, bearing that grief. We never have a conversation about that. We're told that we can have it all and be happy all the time. And that's just unrealistic. And so when people start feeling that loss or that sadness or a bit of dejection, they feel a bit disappointed. They, they feel like they're a bit overwhelmed. They start to think that there's something wrong with them rather than the system or the message. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. 
Um, I, I want to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit towards a very important aspect of your message on social media, even though we're asking people to get off of social media if, if they have, you know, <laughs> overwhelming, which I completely agree with you, I think. I think that's very, very they're important. they're overwhelmed. That they're overwhelmed. But a beautiful message that you share on social media is, um, I think it's it's a part and parcel of this conversation that we had that, um, you know, mental health has to be personalized, it's nuanced, it's complex. But one of the aspects that is not really highlighted is is culture, you know, culture and your background and how you mm -hmm. define mental health and how you create solutions for mental health issues. Um, for me, it's going to be very different for what it might mean for you or or for Dean or for even our children who live in the same household. Um, the definition of mental health and the solutions may be quite varied, let alone other traditions and, and countries and people from different cultures. Um, a, we, we, try to, we try to kind of see the solution as a one model fit all or a cookie cutter approach of like, here's a brochure that I wrote and you apply that <laughs> to your life and you're going to get fixed. I, I dislike those kind of messages, but you actually just kind of shatter that and you show the complexity and you talk about food and, 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 and different flavors and cultures and mental health all mixed into it. It's absolutely beautiful. Can you kind of shine some light on that complexity for our audience? That's really kind of you because I, I tend to think of my social media account as quite random. <laughs> like I, I always wonder what people think if they've just arrived. What, no, what no, 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 uh, no. On the contrary, I think uh, it's it's a beautiful representation of the human mind. You might think it's random, but you would disagree. There's an archetype that flows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, yes. So I think certainly in terms of in terms of the conversation and the narrative around food, because I became very aware, and I and I, I suppose I should hold my hand up, and I. Perhaps for some people, I am part of the problem because I do try to talk about um, nutrition and brain health. And I do try to say this stuff is important for you. Um, but what I try to avoid and what to take active steps against is the reductionism of food down to just nutrients itself. Um, and really the idea that there is one, one like one ring to rule them all, one diet to rule them all, or one way to rule them all. Um, because it's just not true. It's and it's not even true in a single human lifetime, right? If if it was true that we should only be eating one type of food our entire lives, then we still all be drinking breast milk, right? <laughs> we know that the, there is specific food and specific nutrients that are right for a particular stage in your life, given all of this other information. Um, and what I absolutely don't want to do for myself or for anybody else is extract the pleasure out of food. Uh, food is one of the most accessible pleasures that we have. Um, it is absolutely crucial. There's some really lovely research around the relationship between um, eating together and closeness in your relationships. And it seems to go in that direction because you'd think, oh, maybe, oh, you tend to eat together more with the people that you like. Actually, the directional causality seems to be 
you feel closer to people that you eat with. So if you've got friends who are on the fringes or people you quite like and you think, oh, I, I, you know, I'd like to get to know you better, eat with them. And that will help to foster a warmer, closer relationship. Um, the, just the beauty and texture of food in terms of religious festivals and birthday cake and the symbolism of it. I want, I, I never want us to lose that because I think that is so much of, of the joy of, of life and the joy of eating. And, and again, yes, yeah, kind of keep those two things in balance. You need to eat well because, you know, you want to be able to, to, to be well, but also part of a good living, a good life it's about being able to maybe share a slice of cake with a friend, eat some ice cream when you're feeling blue with a friend, like that kind of thing. Um, so never wanting to be kind of extreme about it. Um, but yeah, it, it's a hard line to tread and it's a hard line to make sexy on social media. You know, it's a hard one to like, you know, come over here and have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and you'll be fine. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. <laughs> No, that that's where the complexity comes in. You you're right. I mean, we, we we so it's who your audience is and where there are they are in their motivations and where the fact is right. So we say that uh, we don't like the word uh, two words we hate is motivation and moderation because they're they don't have a denominator. They're meaningless. They're just fillers to make people feel good about uh, saying them. But 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 the alternative is here's the fact. This is the ultimate healthy diet. That's not even ultimate for you, but it appears that in this direction, more unprocessed, more plant-centered, more of this, this seems to be beneficial. We are whole food plant-based, but you can be healthy in many different ways, but this is one way. And, and, and that's, if that's your motivation, it's going to take X, Y, and Z. But reality is it's not an all or non phenomenon. It's where you can actually make that first little change, if that's what you want, first of all. Um, and, and if you want that little change, then make that little change. Like you said, I love your idea of five-minute walk. You know, we are nutritionists. We've, you know, we, we're masters. But what, where we start is that first five to 10-minute walk in the morning where it's the low-hanging fruit. It's, the, it's, it's where the difference can be made, where the success can be felt, where the habit can be initiated. <clears throat> so it's the complexity of where the person is, what they want to do, where the data is, where you should start, and it should be like that. It's not, here's the three secrets to living well. <laughs> there are no three secrets to living well. Well, unfortunately, there are. We'd all be, you know, if these things worked, we'd all be a hundred with six packs. Like it would, we'd already be there. Yeah. So it, yeah. It, it literally, it cannot be the case. If it were easy, if it was simple, if it were neat and tidy, we'd all be there. But, but it's, it's all messy. And one of the things I found that, people really don't like to hear is that a huge amount of learning how to look after yourself, of learning how, you know, learning what works for you, whether it's physical or mental health, is trial and error. Mm -hmm. like, you have to go off and you have to try this and see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, we'll course correct and we'll calibrate it a little bit and then we'll try it again. People hate that. They, <laughs> they hate, and I've literally had people say, no, just tell me what to do. Like, I know you've had training, I know <laughs> you've been to school, you know how to do this, just tell me what to do. And 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 it, I feel sometimes people don't believe me when I say it's it's really not that simple because what works for me in this moment won't work for you. It won't work for you. You know, it might 
give you an idea of what works for you, what doesn't work for you so that you can get closer to what, what does. But it's so much is trial and error. And I think we, whether it's about um, loss aversion, you know, we don't want the feeling of failing. We don't want the feeling of having wasted time. We don't want to feel as if someone else is overtaking us in, in the kind of race to get to the end, wherever the end is. Um, we, we, we don't want to do that trial and error bit. And um, I think the more people can get on board with that, yeah. the better because we, we do it with partners right if we didn't do trial and error in relationships we'd all be married to our first boyfriend or girlfriend <laughs> like we would have just stuck with the first one and carried on we understand that actually part of relationships is about learning about that specific combination learning oh I, I kind of like this in a person i don't like that i'm like this with this kind of person i'm different with this kind of person and we understand that in some contexts that trial and error is is suitable and valuable. And even if the relationship doesn't work out, you've learned something and you've taken something and that can be really beautiful all by itself. But we don't want to do it with learning what foods are best for us or learning what exercise we like. You know, what's the best exercise? Well, it's the best, it's the one you like and that you're likely to do. No, but which one is it? No, honestly, <laughs> it's the one you like and are likely to do on a regular basis. Beautifully stated. I think <clears throat> uh, the phrase meeting people where they are is overused and it kind of sounds simplistic, but that's exactly at the core of your message here. And you know, whether it's in our clinic or in our research, that's the main concept. You do you 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 provide information for people, but they really have to find themselves in it. And emphasis should be more on the journey of finding joy in the next step rather than this unachievable outcome that everybody tries to create. Um, and whether it's for brain health, mental health issues, physical health, whether it's improvement of relationships, and at the end of the day, just increasing the quanta of joy that we experience at every moment. You know, that, that's, that's the goal, to increase the quanta of joy that is created every moment and for all of us to be the best versions of who we are. So we so appreciate that message that Absolutely. you're sharing with everyone. And the book... I didn't even get to ask you all of the fantastic <laughs> questions that I have written for myself regarding we'll, we'll your amazing book, Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Crisis. But I think, Kimberly, that should be a part two of our conversations, don't you think? Love to come back. I'd love to come back. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Kimberly, thank you for who you are. Thank you for taking the time to share your brilliant brain and your experiences with everyone on social media and for coming on to our podcast to talk about, which I know I'm biased, but it's probably the most important conversation, which is, you know, our mental health and the decisions we make every single day to improve our mental health. Because at the end of the day, that's who we are, aren't we? It's everything. It's really, it's everything about who we are. Your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your goals are all in are all your brain. And so we should really be thinking about how we take care of it best. And actually how... The other thing is how responsible we are for the well-being of others, because we all affect each other's nervous systems. We all affect each other. And so we should partially understand that we have a responsibility to others as well. We're all in this life together. Beautifully stated. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much Kimberly. Thank you, Kimberly. I look forward to the next conversation. Thank you so much for having me.